Dixon, who uh, comes back at him. It's a wonderful run from Gang! Sensational goal from Ryan Gang! Harry Pallister calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole for Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gage with a shot! Welcome to our Devil Talk, the podcast. My name is Jimmy Williams. Today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by former Man United Premier League winner, Luke Chadwick. Before we start, Luke, I want to say welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your time. No worries at all. Good to be here, Jimmy. I'd like to begin by asking about the football fun factory. I've been following you on social media recently. I've been following Frey and I love the messages you're trying to get across. I want to know, how did that start? Why did it start? Who were the main, I suppose, people involved in its inception? So it started around two years ago by a, a guy called James Cutting. He um, started the organisation, just sort of running it in the area that he lived. He soon got involved with uh, an ex-colleague of his, Johnny Martin, who's his co-founder, who I work with closely at, at Cambridge United in the academy side of the of the club. And I moved over probably about a year ago now to, to work with the guys it's it round um, when I stopped playing football. I found it quite hard to to sort of find something that I wanted to do. I got a job in the academy at Cambridge. It should have been a dream job, really, but I never, I didn't really enjoy it as much as I should. It weren't it weren't really for me. And when I spoke to to Johnny and James about the football fun factory, it just had a real sort of meaning to it in terms of children's first experience in football being an incredibly fun one. Something they enjoy and love doing and something to be part of that was something that I was really infused by really and I thoroughly enjoyed being part of it and it is um it's an incredible program that, that we run and it is it's so much fun and so rewarding at the same time. Something that strikes me and from Freya's messages especially she shares things about modesty, encouragement, kindness, persistence. Is it a case of trying to prepare people for life lessons that are applicable on a football pitch and also, I suppose, in life in general. I think these messages are good messages. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's what the programme is all about, really. The be-all and end-all is obviously fun and children smiling, enjoying running around, but it's using football as a vehicle to develop really positive life qualities like teamwork, sportsmanship, communication and that sort of thing. And that that's what our messages are probably more than actual football development obviously you're going to develop in football by playing the game but there's so many more lessons that can be learned and using the love of football is a is a wonderful way to be able to achieve that i want to ask you about united it's only 20 years since you won that premier league medal as you sit here now how do you reflect on your time at united yeah it was an incredible time i signed for the club as a as a 14 year old boy and i remember remember it very well it's something I'm obviously extremely proud of obviously winning a, a Premier League medal is something that I look back now and can't hardly believe really but it was um, when we talk about them life lessons that we're trying to evolve in our football sessions that they were things that 
I certainly learned at Manchester United and them lessons, the life lessons probably above the football lessons are things that I'll, I'll never forget and always be extremely grateful for and extremely privileged to have been a, a part of that wonderful football club. Can you give me an example of some of those life lessons that you took forward? Yeah, I think it's just sort of that humility, the hard work that's required to be successful in any walk of life, really. that was It was always drummed into you from a really early age, from signing for the club, whether you were a professional player or a schoolboy player, what, what's expected of you when you're representing the football club, whether that be on the pitch in a game or off the pitch when you're just with your family and friends, you're always expected to have the, the highest standards possible because you were in such a, a privileged position being a Manchester United football player. And I think they're lessons that every player that has been at the club would have learned in some way or another. And the, there was obviously a huge amount of boys that didn't go on to be professional footballers, but I'm sure with the lessons they learned, it stood them in good stead to be successful in any walk of life that they, they chose to be part of. I want to move on to something that you've been very vocal about in the past. You've you've opened up about your abuse or criticism, I'm not sure what's the correct word, of your appearance in the media. I want to know, when did that start in your career? At what point did you start beginning to hear these things? I think probably just when it's the, when I first got into the, the Manchester United first team squad in and around the squad and you obviously start to realise that you're famous now because you're playing for the biggest club in the world. And for me, that was probably a negative effect that it had on me because of the the sort of attention that I received was probably not around football or anything like that. It was a way that I, I looked to my appearance, which was obviously as a young, a young man, as it were, but never really was all, all I ever knew was football because that's what I've done, did from such a young age. So it was probably, I didn't have any idea how to deal with the, the abuse or the mockery that I received. So that, and it was because I was such a, a quiet sort of introverted guy as well that I'd never spoke about it and never spoke about the, the way that it made me feel at that time. That must have been quite damaging to your esteem, to your self-confidence. Yeah, definitely. I hugely dent into my self-esteem, self-confidence, but at the same time, it's not, you don't know anything different as it were. So you don't, know that you're going through that you don't realize that it's it's sort of damaging you mentally it was a i came back from belgium at royal antwerp and then went into the team at united and i didn't know it does everyone deal with this sort of thing i'm sure a lot of the players have received abuse from media from fans etc so it was a case of i don't look back now and think i wish that never happened or if things were different because that was just the, the way that it was and the the things that I went through, really. Did anyone inside the club have any idea that this was going on or that this was taking its toll on you the way it was? No, no one. I, don't, I never mentioned it to anyone. I never, obviously everyone could see what was happening, but I'd just sort of say, I, I don't care. I don't, I'm not bothered. It's fine. Even I wouldn't speak to my girlfriend, my family, my mum, my dad. I didn't speak to anyone about it at all. And obviously in hindsight, it would have been a better way of dealing with it to have spoke to someone about it, but how I felt at the time, and I was so uh, embarrassed by it, I was in such a privileged position in my head, I was thinking, what have you got to to be moaning about? And again, just it was such a, a sort of school playground sort of thing that was going on. I thought there was 
it was more my problem and something wrong with me, the fact that it did make, make me feel the way that it did. I read that Nick Hancock apologised in the media. I want to ask, did he reach out to you personally? Did he try to do that to you personally? Yeah, he reached out to me personally. And again, it was uh, obviously I was quite surprised. I, I'm quite new to social media and the like of the attention that, that the tweet that I sent out received, really. It was never a case of trying to get an apology or drop or make the, these people feel bad. I've got no grudge to these people. It's one of them. It, it happened. There's nothing that, that I can do to change that. It was more of a case of trying to encourage people to talk about their problems if they're going through a period of poor mental health and they're feeling low a lot of the time. It was never about getting all the publicity they ended up getting and sort of having an, an apology of, of these people that were on the show. It, it was never about that. I want to ask you about social media, more broadly speaking, of course, you have a lot of followers, public figure. In general terms, would you get a lot of stake online? Um, to be honest, probably less than less than I thought I'd get, to be honest with you. It's not a, a great deal. Obviously, it's, it's an easy way for people to say negative things, social media. It's probably yeah. something that needs to be worked on because that is, is so easy. You see some awful things and read awful things, what have been said the racist abuse that Ian Wright, I remember reading the story, Wilfred Zaha has received, and that that shouldn't be able people to do that so easily. I think that's completely wrong. From my point of view, obviously, you get some negative comments, but it's, it's, you can't help that. You can't stop people saying the things they say. In I'm in a position where it's, it doesn't affect me now. Obviously, I'm not a, a young boy that I was 20-odd years ago where I was sort of lacking in a lot of self-confidence and things affected me really easily. I think social media, there does need to be more done to stop some of the, I mean, people say stuff to me, it's, it's in no way as bad as other people receive, but it's, it's one of them things that needs more work done from the, the social media platforms, I think, to, to stop that happening and to have more ways of, tracking the people that say the, the terrible things that are said at times. How does such negative, I suppose, psychological impl implications, how does that influence performance on the field? To, to be honest, I don't think it, it had a huge... Football was always sort of the release. It was something that I'd always loved doing and to, obviously to be playing with these world-class players was a dream come true. So I always... That was a time where my mind was free to, to do what I love doing, really. I think um, in terms of performance, it, I wouldn't say it, it affected me a huge amount. I think it was uh, it really affected my experience. It probably was, should have been the best time of my life off the field as well because I was playing for the, the best team in the world, won a Premier League medal as a really young lad, and it, it was probably soured that experience because of the way that I felt inside and the way that, I felt about myself at that time because I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to really leave my flat that much because of the. I was always so worried about what people might say because I never spoke about my problem. If I went out, there probably wouldn't have been that much said to me anyway. But in my mind, it was so sort of, oh, I can't do that because what if someone says something about me and something like that? So I think that's how it really affected me and probably soured a lot of my time off the pitch rather than on it at Man United. I'm curious to ask you about career transitions, post-playing, retirement. Did you struggle to make that transition from 
professional player having games to prepare for, training to prepare for, to then not being a pressure player. Yeah, massively. I mean, like, I think like uh, a lot of players, as as I was getting older, you hear a lot of stories about footballers that, or sports people that struggle when the, their career comes to an end. I was just one of them. I'll, I'll be fine. It, it won't. It won't affect me. It would just be nice to to have a rest, as it were, not be running around every day. But when it when it comes to that, I never really had a a plan in place. It was always just. Um, Football, football, football. That was all I was interested in as a player. So I never really educated myself as a 14-year-old when I signed for Man United. I probably down tools at school a little bit and didn't work as hard as I should have done to get any sort of qualifications of education. But then probably the biggest effect it has on you is sort of that self-identity of, of what am I now? Where do I fit in this world? Because... All I've been known as, all I've done has been a footballer. Now I'm, I'm not a footballer anymore. Where do I sit? What do I do? I went through my um, coaching qualifications, but I like, never saw myself as a coach. It wasn't something I really was that passionate about, was of being a football coach. But it's just what you do, I think, sometimes as a player. You don't see the opportunities that are there away from the game. So it was a real struggle, and I've probably finished playing about five years or so now and it's probably the only the last 18 months or so where I've really accepted that I'm I'm not that football player anymore I'm just I'm living another life away from the game and it's the next sort of chapter of my life now to to enjoy and do different things Hi this is Ken Doherty and you're listening to Red Devil Talk the podcast with Jimmy Williams You touched on identity there would it be fair to say that soccer players do they adopt a rigid, I suppose, persona of simply that of just an athlete? Yeah, well, I couldn't speak for everyone. I think in my in my case, I did. It was like I, there was never any thought. There was never, and there is obviously options out there in terms of education, educating yourself with the the PFA and whatnot. But it was just you never really. I never wanted to admit myself to myself that my career was coming to an end and to sort of do something else and go down another route would have been sort of showing weakness to myself because I'm accepting that my career's gone to an come to an end. So it was it was a real challenge. I sort of didn't get a contract at my last at my last football club and then had a couple of offers but it would have meant travelling a, a long way across the country to get there, which I didn't want to do and it was just a case of never really admitting to myself that my career was over, even two years post-playing, I think you still think perhaps I'll get asked to go and play for for another team or, or something like that. So it was just really so hard to admit that, that my career as a football player was over. I guess after I was essentially two decades as a pro player, you're then, you're then left with this void to fill in many respects. Yeah, and that is, like I say, what, what do you do now? What do you fill your time with it's it's such a a foreign situation because sort of your whole life to date you've been managed told to be at a certain place you don't really have to do anything for yourself so you're just being at a certain place playing a certain game going home resting for the next one and focusing on the next game there was always something to to really focus your mind on because it was your career it was your job and it was your passion as well it's something you've you've been doing from such a young age. I was probably 
known as a talented footballer in the area that I live from about the age of eight or nine years old and then you do it for the next 25, 26, 27 years and it's it's all just taken away and if you haven't prepared for that next chapter it is a, a really challenging time. Do you think contemporary coaching should look to incorporate having a plan B? I know obviously the goal is to encourage players to become professional footballers but I read a statistic recently that only 1% of them actually do become professional footballers. So do you think coaching should look to maybe encourage having a plan B or a backup? Yeah, I think it, it's always going to be hard. I think what, whatever you do, it's always going to be a tough period when you, you can't play anymore. But I think you can. there's certainly more that can be done to support players like before they become... It is improved since I was coming through, but before, during... And our post-career, there needs to be more sort of avenues open and more, <clears throat> excuse me, encouragement to, to take advantage of these opportunities because it is, as well as a void, there's a, the financial area to look at as well because when it stops, you just, you stop getting paid, you're not getting an income anymore. So there's, there's certainly more that can be done. And I think more learning about yourself, more sort of opportunity to, to have more emotional intelligence. We spoke about when I went through my the time at United when I was getting the abuse or whatever that I got on TV and in the media. It was I didn't have any idea how to do to deal with it because all I saw myself as was a football player. I didn't know how why this is making me feel that way. So I think it's so important when you're in that bubble, which you can be as a professional footballer, that you you sort of have that emotional intelligence to understand why I'm feeling that way, or why that comment on social media has made me feel so bad, or why that person saying something on the telly and to be open to talk about that. Because I think it's it's massively important when you're throughout your career, but particularly when you come to an end and you are struggling a bit mentally, that you talk about the way you're feeling inside. Because doing that does take that weight off your shoulder to know that other people have gone through the same thing and that understanding of why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. There's a lot of research recently that says pro soccer players are at an increased risk of mental health problems and anxiety when they retire in the sense that they're coming from this high adrenaline profession with fans singing their name to essentially being forgotten. Does that research surprise you? Not really. I completely, I can see that. I can't, every player that stops playing football, I think that it's going to affect them in some way, sort of negatively, some more than others. But again, that, that stat, it doesn't surprise me at all. But I think a lot of people maybe have the, the same attitude that I had when I was coming to the end where you see people struggling, but you, you think it's not going to be you until you're actually in that situation. So you've probably not done enough to prepare for your football career coming to an end. So I think a huge amount of the time, it's not probably a, a lot more times when it's the, the player's not choosing for their career to come to an end. They've not planned for it. It's not like I'm stopping playing then. It's usually an injury or a football club deciding not to renew a contract and take you back on, which is essentially someone's else, someone else's decision to, to end your football career. As a man who's gone through it, do you have any advice for people to, I suppose, safeguard their well-being? The, the biggest bit of advice that I would give is to, to make sure you, you know yourself inside out. Don't be 
football's full of a lot of ego. You've sort of always got to say you're good, you're doing well. I think we have improved in terms of people talking about their feelings, but I think if more people can be encouraged, not just in football, but in, in all walks of life, really, to talk about the way they're feeling more often, it's going to help them when there is big change in your life, when something happens that completely changes the way you live, is you, you're more comfortable and more open to talk about how I feel, what, and then understanding why you're feeling like that, and then maybe having things that can help you overcome them, them bad feelings and stay positive and stay on a, a, a track where you can succeed even more in life. Like football, people finish football at the age of 35, 30, whatever it is, you've still got probably more of your life left to live, hopefully, than what you've lived already. So to, if you can look at that in a positive way, there's huge opportunities out there for ex-players when, when their career comes to an end. I'd like to conclude by jumping back to United and then I'm going to ask you the fan questions. How much of United do you get to watch nowadays, Luke? Oh, I watch um, the majority of the games on the telly. Obviously, they haven't been too successful in this season so far. I go up sometimes to, to do the MUTV, which is enjoyable, to sometimes watch the young players or watch the first team, which is great to, to go back up to the club and just see some old faces and that sort of thing. So I do follow the club intently in terms of the games on the telly. Of course, Solskjaer is an ex-teammate of yours. He's in a precarious position at the moment. I think he's under pressure. I think the next the next 10 games are crucial for him. I think there's some tough games in there. What do you think Solskjaer needs to do to turn this around? Which It sounds, it sounds dramatic after three games, but if you read social media, the papers... Of course, there are the Pochettino links that don't help. Well, he needs to win some games. I think obviously winning games is what football's all about. I do worry if Solskjaer is to go, then what next Pochettino come in? But they've tried a, a similar sort of short-term fix with Louis van Gaal and Jose Mourinho. I think with Oli, there's someone that, given time, obviously he's been given a little bit of time already, but... If he's given time to get things right in the long term, I think there's no way anyone else, like someone like Ollie, is going to be there for a period of seven, eight, nine, ten years because you just don't get time or the, the manager moves on. Like Jose, Ollie knows the club inside out. He would have learned and spoke openly about learning massive lessons from Sir Alex Ferguson and being such a a figure at the club I think is important in terms of knowing what the football club's all about, what the environment like, what the culture of the history of the club. And I think someone like Ollie has all that in abundance and should be given every opportunity to make it work because if Pochettino comes in, I don't know what he'll change in terms of it's the same squad. Ollie's shown that he can get the best out of incredibly gifted players at times last season, the likes of Pogba, Martial have probably played their best games towards the end of last season in a United shirt. So I think Oli's shown that he can he can get the best out of the players. And I think just doing that on a consistent basis, it's a some fantastic players in the squad and getting that right blend in there to, and start winning some games, I'm sure that he can be the success be really successful and be the man to to lead the club forward. I know for many fans the perception of Solskjaer from the outside looking in is that he's possibly too soft at times, too nice. Obviously, you know Solskjaer first hand. Do you think that's accurate? 
No, he's a, from what I, when I've obviously played with him, he's a lovely man, but I don't think that means that he can't be hard and firm at, um, at times. He's, as a, as a player, he was incredibly hard working, always got the best out of himself, always practiced as much as it, or as much or more than everyone else, always done the things off the pitch to make himself as good as he could possibly be. I think in terms of the management, in terms of, Shouting, having a go at players, there's still a time and a place for that. But I think what Ollie got, Ollie has got, is really good people skills to build relationships to get the best out of players. I think the game's changed a lot, where you can just shout at the whole team and expect to get a massive reaction and win a game. I think Ollie's shown really good intelligence to deal with individual players and try and get the the best out of them. So I wouldn't say he's too nice to to get success at the club because I think he's definitely got a a mentality and a hard-working attitude to to go and do the best he can possibly do for the club and move the club forward. Dave Cleaver asks, how did you feel in training when trying to compete for a place with Beckham? Oh, it was um, it was obviously tough. To be honest with you, I never... I was so happy to be in it. I, I was absolutely delighted to be even considered as David Beckham's understudy. So it was never a case of me sort of banging on the manager's office saying I should be playing. It was an incredible experience. I played, spent a lot of time with Ryan Giggs and David Beckham when we done certain drills. So it was a huge opportunity to learn from these world-class players. It was um, something that I'll never forget and something that stood me in good stead to have a career in football by watching these guys' attitude, the way that they trained, the way that they lived their lives. So it was um, an absolute pleasure playing with David Beckham and sort of learning from him over the short time that I was in and around the first team squad. I think some of the criticism that Beckham has got has been over the top. I don't know if he ever got the credit for what he achieved at United, especially for his performances in 98 and 99. I mean, he was fantastic. I don't think he got the credit for that. He doesn't do a lot of media. What's he like as a person, David Beckham? Yeah, like all the lads, he was a like a fantastic human being, really humble for a player that achieves so much and so hard working. But I could probably describe each and every player in the squad the same because they were all like that. They were all really humble guys and they always wanted to get the best out of themselves, whether that be a, a match on a Saturday or training on a Monday morning. As fans, we often hear about Roy Keane and the glare he would give you in training if you misplaced a pass or made a mistake. I want to know, were you ever on the receiving end of that famous keen glare? Yes, many times, many, many times. When I came back from Antwerp and went into training with United, obviously it was completely different in terms of the standard of players and the quality of the training session. But I remember sort of giving the ball away and Roy had an absolute, like a real go at me about it. And it was sort of, oh my God, this is... This is a lot different to what I'm used to. But at the same time, he was um, a wonderful captain of the football team and he, he would be really hard on you on the pitch if you weren't up to his standards, which is what you need in an, an elite environment to, to get have the success that the club had. But at the same time, an incredibly supportive figure off the field where he'd always look out for everyone and really help the, the young lads that were just sort of coming into the squad and coming into the team. Just touching on the last sentence you said there, that he was supportive. As fans, I suppose the persona that we are fed of Roy Keane is this man who is like ranting and raving all the time. Is that not entirely accurate? 
No, not at all. Not at all. Like I say, he drove standards in, incredibly hard and made sure that everyone was at their maximum every day, both physically and technically. But again, it, there's times when I hadn't passed my driving test and he'd go out his way to, to pick me up from my flat to get me to training. With me. Like he'd, he'd do everything he could to make sure that the dressing room was in its best place possible to go and win all the the silverware which the team that he captained did. Final question. I want to thank you for your time again. If you had 30 minutes to sit on a bench and have a conversation with a person, now this can be a person that's dead, this can be a person that's alive, a musician, a footballer, someone from history, anybody at all. If you had 30 minutes to have a conversation with someone on a bench, who would it be and why? Flipping out. That's a tough one. You put me on the spot there. I'd probably say... Winston Churchill. Okay. I think just uh, so obviously a, an incredible leader and obviously seen the films about him and just talk about how he was feeling in such incredibly pressurised situation with the lives of millions of people on his on his watch, as it were. So I think that would be quite a, an interesting conversation to have. I think for me, if I had someone to pick, I would pick Sir Alex Ferguson. I would love to pick his reign for 30 minutes on his time United I think it would be a fascinating conversation yeah I, I would imagine that would be isn't it an incredible one of the most incredible people I've ever had the, the fortune to meet so I, I think that would be a, a great chat for you to have Luke thanks very much I really enjoyed that no worries Jimmy All nice to talk to you Pass here, pass Calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole for Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score.